0: Good morning. Good morning, Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of your Bibles, just a couple pages in, put your finger there, all of us have read books or watched movies or watched TV shows listen to music maybe, that has had a real impact on us. And when something has an impact on us, you can kind of remember where you were when you first heard that song or where you were sitting when you watched that particular movie or where, where it was in a book where that particular event took place and it had like this deep impact on you. One of my favorite directors, movie directors, M. Night Shyamalan. How many people familiar with him? He did a movie. So this is a spoiler alert, but it's an older movie. So you should have watched it by now. <laughs> it's called The Village, and it actually is filmed in an area of the world where I grew up. So Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania is where my wife and I lived when we first got married, but I lived right around there. And so he filmed this movie called The Village right there it's a beautiful area of the world. But that's not why the movie was impactful. The movie The Village revolves around a small little town in Pennsylvania. And the residents of this town live by very strict rules. They're not to leave the village or the monsters beyond their boundaries, will surely attack them. The residents of this small little village called Covington, they live very isolated in a 19th century village. They live in constant fear of, quote, those we don't speak of. They're these nameless humanoid creatures living within the surrounding woods. And Night Shyamalan is like his hero, Alfred Hitchcock, in that he scares you to death by what he doesn't show you. The villagers have constructed like these, lar- these large barriers, and there's oil lanterns placed at the top, and there's these watchtowers where people take positions as security guards. Everybody has to take their shift watching. The surrounding woods. Two characters. Ivy is the main character. And Lucius is one of the other characters. They're young adults. They live in this colonial town. They fall in love. Ivy, by the way, is blind. But there's a man named Noah who lives in the town. He's got an intellectual disability. And he really loves Ivy. And when he discovers that she and Lucius love one another... He attacks Lucius badly. He's dying. And so they need outside help. Somebody's got to leave their comfortable village to get beyond, to venture out into the land where those we don't speak of exist. So Ivy... Decides that she'll do it. She's blind. She's going to go and find help to save Lucius. So she's armed with hope. She's armed with determination. She leaves her secluded village behind, carrying her father's pocket watch as payment for whatever medical services she could find for him. And it is a harrowing moment in the movie where this blind woman is walking through the woods with these creatures following her, tracking her. And the scene just builds until you see her kind of running with her, her staff in front of her, tapping the woods with what seems to be something chasing her. And the scene moves to a climax when her stick is moving. You're wondering what is going to happen. And she's running through the woods. And then all of a sudden, her staff hits a wall. I can remember where I was sitting. When that staff hit the wall, what is on the other side of that wall? This ivy-covered wall. She climbs over the wall and falls onto the other side where a park ranger in a Ford Ranger on a walkie talkie goes driving by. The little village she's living in actually exists in the year 2023. That, friends, is what you call flipping the script when something takes an unexpected turn and that's a director who's a brilliant who's brilliant at flipping the script his movies constantly take an unexpected turn today we're going to read genesis 3 verse 15 And this is the greatest flipping of the script the world has ever known. All other attempts at flipping the script are modeled after the flipping of the script we see here. Grace can define grace for us this morning in worship. He didn't know I was going to define it here when I preach. Grace as the Bible defines it is unexpected favor shown to the undeserving. And here in Genesis 3:15 we have our first sighting of grace as unexpected favor in the Bible. This is the first display of grace, the first display of favor towards those who don't deserve it. This is the first sighting of Christ in your Bible. This is the first prophecy of a Savior. the First demonstration of grace. And so, if you do mark your Bible, which I would encourage you to do, or highlight your Bible, you should put a circle around, or a highlight, around Genesis 3, verse 15. Let's read it together. Now keep in context, this is the Lord speaking to the serpent, which we covered last week. He's continuing his curse of the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The NIV actually says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, warm our hearts, mold our wills, and help us to see how grace always flips the script. In Jesus' name, amen. So organizing question. How is God's grace flipping the script in our lives? How is God's grace flipping the script in our lives? How is God's grace doing the unexpected? How is, how is grace, this unmerited favor, in operation in our lives? I'll answer it with three Responses. Number one, in moments of temptation and sin, grace liberates us from deception. In moments of temptation and sin, grace liberates us from deception. At first glance, we would not anticipate that this verse or this section. Would have anything really wonderful to say. This is the this is the fall. This is this is mankind's rebellion against God. And and God has come looking for them, they're hiding, and He's He's coming to, to call them to account, to, to encourage them. He's looking for them in grace to get them to own up to their wrongdoing. So this is not, you would not think that this is a place where you would see some particularly gracious words. This is unexpected. We're talking about the conflict here between the devil and Eve, and we're, we're talking about God's curse of the serpent, and God speaks of enmity. When you think of enmity which means hatred, mutual antagonism, you don't usually have a lot of warm and happy thoughts. You're not usually thinking of something good is about to happen here. How can good come from this? Is there anything good going on here? But the enmity that God speaks of here So the serpent is good. Enmity is good. And we should be alerted to the fact that it's good because it's God who created it, He created the enmity. And everything God does is good. But we should ask, how can enmity be good? How can evil be good? How can God be the author of enmity in any form? The context explains it. Satan, fallen angel, whose original sin consisted of trying to replace God as the ruler. Overall, ruler of creation. And he's trying to gather worshipers around himself rather than around God. That attempt that he did proved unsuccessful. So he's cast out of heaven by God now he's appeared on earth to attempt to do among the new creation of humanity the new race of humans what he failed to do in heaven he has two goals in mind first seduce adam and eve away from a loving relationship with god their father and creator and second Win their allegiance and worship for himself only. He succeeded in the first. He did break their fellowship with God, consequently, our fellowship with God. But he didn't succeed in the second. Why? Because God announces that he's putting enmity between Satan and the woman, between Satan and and her, and Eve's children. And this is significant, church, because these words are spoken to Satan. The new thing that he's speaking about, this hatred, this enmity, is not new as it relates to Satan. Do you think Satan loved or hated Eve? Do you think Satan loves or hates you? So the enmity that God is speaking of here is not an enmity that Satan needed. He already had it. He hated Eve. He hated Adam. He hated us from the moment humans were created. The new thing about this is that now Eve and Adam and their kids are going to hate him. And friends, that is a flipping of the script. On Satan, on sin. This is one of God's gracious preservations for humanity, is that we actually have an enmity towards sin. Towards evil. Now that doesn't mean we don't do it. Does it? Satan doesn't come to you telling you he hates you. He comes to you offering friendship and power and satisfied lusts. But I want us to see something here in Genesis 3.15. When we experience love and joy and beauty and happiness that Jesus has brought to us, we are thankful. But I wonder if we are also thankful for a corresponding hatred of sin, a corresponding hatred for the sorrow that it brings into people's lives, into our lives. A corresponding hatred for the misery we find, we experience when we find ourselves ensnared in sin. That is a gift of grace from God. Isn't it true? We often find that we like the sin. but we don't like its consequences. That's how sin dupes us. is because sin always comes promising the pleasure that the sin will bring. But it never comes reasoning with you over what sin's consequences will bring. Sin's greatest strategy for effectiveness, is its ability to deceive us. So we can sit and and meditate and think about and fantasize about how sin, some particular sin, would make us happy. And we can do that without any regard for its consequences. We can destroy ourselves in sin and we'd love to be happy about it, but we can't. And that, friends, is the grace of God. We would love to go to hell happy. But we can't. Why? Because God, in his kindness, has put enmity between you and Satan. Between you and sin. God makes sin miserable. I often think about what will hell be like, and I, this is don't, don't like... This is just my thoughts on this. I've never been there. I don't want to ever go there. And thanks be to God that hell will never receive me because I'm clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Whew, it gets me nervous just thinking about it. So I've never been there. I don't know. But I wonder, what would hell be like? Like, what is it going to be like? And I wonder if one of the sins of hell will be that you'll just get stuck in the cycle of doing the same things over and over again, wallowing in the misery and the consequences that they bring. You'll keep doing the same bad thing over and over again, and you'll eventually want to stop, and you can't. That sounds like hell to me. But God makes sin miserable. Some of you, even now, are experiencing some misery in your life. It's like the, the, the consequences, the effect of sinful choices made in the past are inflicting a form of misery upon you. You're, 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 you feel it. Others feel it. You feel miserable. You wish that you could get away from it. There's guilt, there's fame, there's, there, fame. there's guilt, there's fear, there's shame. And, and you want to get away from those things and, and so you run away from God. And God wants to flip the script. God is making sin miserable. God actually allows us to experience the consequences of sin. He sets up this antagonism between ourselves and between Satan and between sin and the world and it modifies the hold of sin upon us. It makes it possible to hear God's loving voice often in our misery. Isn't that the kindness of God? I won't make you raise your hand, but I'll bet that the grace of God has has come to you at a point in your time where you were miserable over sin's consequences and it pushed you to Jesus. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is Romans 8.28. Guys, you ever struggle to understand that God's working all things for good? He is sovereignly, and, and in his goodness, working all things for good, according to his purpose, according to those that are called by him and love him. That's Joseph at the end of his life. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. It's a tragic situation. He gets to the end of it. And God has raised him up, and, and he's positioned him to be a means of grace and help to even his brothers and his family. And he says to him, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's flipping the script, guys. That's what we're talking about here. So... How is God's grace flipping the script in our lives? In moments of temptation and sin, grace liberates us from deception. Grace helps us to see what is true about sin. Grace helps us to even ponder the consequences of sin and to to see that that's misery and I want out of here. And that pushes us to Jesus. Second, How is God's grace flipping the script in our lives second way? Is in storms of despair, grace anchors us in the rescuing activity of God. I looked up flipping the script because I was interested in it and I wanted to use it. I felt like it was fresh language for me as I was studying the, how grace is so unexpected, the unexpected nature of grace and this idea of flipping the script. And I wanted to see where the phrase originated from. I thought that it would be probably somewhere in Hollywood and scriptwriters, screenwriters, but that's not where it comes from. Flipping the script actually comes from the graffiti scene. Any graffiti artists who would identify themselves? <laughs> so this idea of flipping the script is in graffiti, you have a tag. That's your, that's your autograph. That's your sign. It's called a script. And you see it on walls and buildings in the city. You've got your tag. To flip the script is to take your rival's tag and do it upside down or backwards, showing That their tag is so easy, it can be done upside down. It can be done backwards. That's what it means to flip the script. Satan has done his script, he's left his tag on the world, and God has flipped the script. He's done the unexpected. He's come to a a group of people that he created, these, these people that he loves who have rebelled against him, and he's coming towards them in grace, unmerited favor, favor and love towards you that you could never earn. So in storms of despair, grace anchors us in the rescuing activity of God. If you trace the activity of God over the course of the Bible, one of the activities you will observe repeatedly, one of the activities of God is him rescuing people. Just keep turning the pages of your Bible. This is the first of many. Genesis 3.15, right in your Bibles. This is Operation Rescue. This is, this is God on a rescue mission. All three persons of the Trinity always working together on Operation Rescue. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, we're told, came to seek and save and rescue the lost. The Holy Spirit also is cooperating, rescuing, in cooperation with the Father and the Son. I'm reading a book by Jonathan Dodson on the Spirit right now that's really helping me. But flip back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I want you to see the Spirit here. Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and... The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Dodson refers to what I'm going to show you here as the avian activity of the Holy Spirit. Avian, bird-like. Here we have Genesis 1:2: the spirit of God hovering over the waters. Deuteronomy. You can turn there if you want. Deuteronomy 32, or you can just write it down and look at it later. But at the end, near the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, we get this vivid description of God and his rescuing activity. 32 verses 10 and 11. He found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle, that's avian, that's bird-like, that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided This is another reference to the rescuing activity of God. He's always seeking us out. He's always running after us. We run run away from him. We run into the wilderness and God comes seeking us out in the wilderness. He circles us. He hovers over us. He, He circles us with favor. He lifts us out of our despair and our wickedness to enjoy him and his affection for us. Praise him. The Holy Spirit. If you're wondering, what does the Holy Spirit do? What's the Holy Spirit doing in me? One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit is regularly alerting us, alerting our hearts to the rescuing love of God. He wants to alert your hearts to the rescuing love. Of God, He would do that right now. If you're not aware of God's rescuing activity right now in your life, then one of the things I would encourage you to do is ask the Holy Spirit to alert you in a fresh way to the rescuing activity of God in your life. Remember the baptism of Jesus. Do you guys remember that story of when Jesus got baptized? There was more avian activity. Do you know why? It was a dove. Johnny got it right. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And a dove lights down and rests upon Jesus. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit resting upon him. And then the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased Why did there have to be a dove? Why was the Holy Spirit doing that? Well, one thing, it was a promise of power. It was a promise of power accompanying the first act of Jesus' mission in seeking and saving the lost. But the Holy Spirit is there together with the Father speaking words of love. This is my Beloved Son. He wants the whole earth to know. This is my Son. I love Him. Holy Spirit is there celebrating with the Father. The love of, celebrating His love of the Son. So before Jesus begins His earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit and the Father are reminding Jesus of their delight in Him. In storms of despair, church... We must remember that the Holy Spirit is present with us. He's present with you, reminding you that you're a son, that you're a daughter, that you're loved by God before you do a single thing for him. What a perspective-altering reality. That the all-satisfying love of God rushes towards you, towards us, apart from merit. That's grace. It's easy to forget. It's easy to go, go live your life not enjoying this. And when we sin, we experience the painful effects of sin, sin, which we've been talking about, guilt and fear and shame. And when we experience the painful effects of sin, our temptation is to run away from God, to hide from God. And so when we experience kinds of storms in our lives, we often run away from God. We run into a corner and hide. Guilt and fear and shame will drive you into a corner but conviction will drive you to Christ. Guilt and fear and shame driving some of us into corners to hide from God. What God in his mercy wants to show you in his rescuing activity is that he's actually at work. He's actually using these things, even the misery that you're experiencing, to cause you to look towards him. And in his love, he's rushing towards you to rescue you. Acknowledging our sins to God is hard. Why? Because it requires admitting failure. And we hate admitting failure. Some of us more than others. But I dare say that there's no one in here that would identify themselves as a person that loves and seeks opportunity to admit my failures. (laughs) We don't like to do that. Have you ever needed to admit your failures? Have you ever had a time set where you knew when you showed up, one of the things you were going to be doing is admitting your failures? That's like a root canal on the calendar. But when we fail, God still loves us because he loves us according to grace, which is not deserved. It's unmerited. We don't need to turn away in shame and despair for not meeting the standard or even our own standards. We can cast ourselves on God's love because Jesus kept the standard for us. God didn't rescue us to leave us stranded in a never-ending battle with despair. He rescued you Because he delights in you. Will you open yourself up to the love poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit? All right, let's move to our last point. How is God's grace flipping the script in our lives? In moments of temptation and sin, grace liberates us from deception. In storms of despair, grace anchors us in the rescuing activity of God. And finally, in sinking defeat, grace assures us of victory in Christ. This seems like, I mean, here we are three chapters into our Bible, and it seems like they're doomed. It seems like defeat is sure, but God flips the script and tells us that there's going to be victory in Christ. He says it this way. He says to Satan, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, or he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know how the bruising of Jesus took place. We know where it took place in its clearest form. It happened at the cross. When Satan succeeded, so it seemed, in striking back at God. A terrible bruising Jesus endured hatred of his own people, hatred of the religious leaders of the day, the mocking of the crowds, the abandonment of his disciples, the beatings, and eventually the crucifixion. But it was only a bruising, it wasn't a defeat. Because on the third day, after his death, he rose from the grave. Satan's only true power, and he does have true power. Do you know who it comes from? It comes from God. It comes from the character of God that says sin must be punished. Satan knows that sin must be punished. He's exhibit A. And he reasoned that if he could get Adam and Eve to sin, which he did, the wrath of God against sin must inevitably come down on them. He knew that would be true. And so he enacted a plan to deceive them, to get them to sin so that they would experience the wrath of God. He could thwart God's design. What he failed to see is how God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. He didn't see that. God flipped the script on him. He failed to see how Jesus could take the place of sinners, bearing their punishment, and how his power would be broken in the process. He didn't see it coming. I'm not sure what Satan was thinking as Jesus was hanging on the cross, but we can, we can imagine what he was thinking. As Jesus hung there in agony, I'm sure he was contemplating, I did it. I got him. I did it. But I think he forgot Genesis 3:15. I think he forgot the curse that God put on him. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I think he forgot Genesis 3:15. I think he forgot this prophecy. I think he forgot this messianic prophecy about a coming Savior. And while he was celebrating in his forgetfulness, he failed to realize that his actions were actually accomplishing our salvation. That's called flipping the script. What happened when it dawned on him that he was actually carrying out the purposes of God to save us by grace? Jonathan Edwards. The very fact that he is probably Satan, the most intelligent being ever created, makes him the greatest blockhead. Jonathan Edwards, I love that. For he was supremely stupid to suppose that he could outthink the all-wise or overpower the almighty. In sinking defeat, I don't know where you are in your life, but when you're in that moment where you feel like I'm defeated, in sinking defeat, grace assures us of victory and Christ. You're going to win. You're going to win if you're attached to Jesus. If you are in Christ, your victory is sure. It doesn't matter what you'll ever experience. Not even death can steal the victory that is ours in Christ. Now, although the victory has been won, there's another victory still to be won in the life of every follower of Jesus. It's a certain victory, but it's still in the process of being achieved. It's being achieved as we continually follow Jesus, as we continue to fight the good fight of the faith in the power of the Spirit. Paul said it this way to the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Revelation says it this way, they, the people of God, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Grace always flips the script.